Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Hello, sweet friends. I'm Teresa. I'm Gumby. And we're here today in our little lab to tell you about my butt hurts, y'all. <laughs> that listener write-in last week when it said your butt smelled. That was like a red flag. Oh, it could have been. That could have been an early warning sign. Yeah, I'm not sure. I guess that's just getting old. I hope it's not a sign of anything more serious. Yeah, Teresa, for the uh, at least the last day, has been talking about her gouted asshole. Her, <laughs> her butt hurts. And I was uh, reflecting, you know, like Henry David Thoreau. He, I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately. And Teresa might say, I went to the woods because my gouted asshole needed to be dipped in the creek. I miss the cold water. I don't think house water can be as cold and healing and refreshing as the creek. But that doesn't mean that I'm not going to uh, take a sits bath tonight. Maybe that'll help. You ever wonder why more people don't open their podcast talking about how their butt feels? No. I, Maybe I actually... when we listen back to this one, we'll, <laughs> we won't wonder either. Well, we're I'm pet sitting, so we're in a house. And uh, I was – this uh, this particular uh, client – of mine she's really nice to like keep having me back and everything um but her house has some uh it's got some character and uh and by character i mean like it it's in need of some repairs but um i'm learning a lot even if i don't really want to learn about houses because uh i'm i'm in one for the next couple weeks so the first thing i do when i get to somebody's place is i try to like open up the windows if I can, the door if I can, and, like, let some fresh air in this thing. And I messed up the front window. <gasps> yeah, that's the way you uh, treat the health of your butt as well. <laughs> I needed to open that thing up a long while Let ago. some fresh air in that thing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I d- like, I'm... Uh, I am not about to replace somebody's window in their house. So I'm looking on YouTube, trying to figure out how to fix this window, like... The lock mechanisms, they're, like, not lining up. So I'm looking at the bottom, like, the windowsill, and uh, I see this video, and it's, like, talking about the sashes and the shoe and all these parts of the window, like, window anatomy. And I'm doing these things, and it's, like, the tilt-in windows, so you could clean them easy, but these windows, I don't think I've ever really been cleaned except maybe, like, rainstorms. And I couldn't fix it. And, like... I just don't feel right, you know, leaving somebody's house with the window unlocked. So, um, finally I, I happened upon another conversation and the answer wasn't down. It wasn't in the bottom part of the window. It was the top part of the window had to be pushed up. (coughs) Oh yeah. That's a dog. Um, so yeah, so that like was a really good lesson in perspective. You know, you might be focused on the problem being in one place, but it might not be there at all. It might be in an entirely different part. 
And then there's a, well, I don't want to bore you with all the plumbing stuff that's going on in this house, but let me just tell you the, uh, the things that we have done to make our lives easier is, it is really, it's psychotic. You guys, it's crazy. The, uh, the drain in the bathtub, if you have one of those drains, that's got like the little switch that, you know, you, you push it up for the tub to be stopped and you can have a bath or you push it down so you could take a shower. That thing wasn't working. So I took that apart and like cleaned it and figured out how to like move it a little bit so that it would actually let the water drain. And now it works perfect. But just thinking about like how simple it could be to just have a, like a drain plug. So you could just put the plug in the drain when you're taking a bath and when you're not taking a bath, just take it out. And Gumby brought up a good point though. Like what if this plug for the drain in your bathtub, like what if you lose it? I mean, I would probably just find something else to put in its place, but... No, that wasn't exactly my point. Oh. Like, you were wondering, like, why people didn't do that. And uh, my point wasn't, like, what if people lose it? My point was that people do indeed lose it. Yeah. It doesn't seem like people should. I mean, like, you got to plug for a bathroom. There's only one use of that. So, like, (laughs) it's pretty easy. You put it back in one place... If you're not using it, it goes there. That's the place for the plug. You use it. You put it right there in the drain. When you get done using it, you put it back. But I see people lose stuff like that all the time, and it's uh, really silly. But yeah. people do it. So I understand why they like kind of upped the uh, way this works to have that little drain handle, that little lever to like stop up the drain. And it's like in the overflow pipe so that you know your tub doesn't like – flow over the top it like goes in this extra little pipe and uh and I guess that's cool but it's just it's so there's so many parts and we were just like kind of discussing why do people lose things is it because we've lost our connection with with things like ritual you know if you have a specific place to put something and you always put it there like a ritual like you would do for something that was more sacred, you know, think about if you don't have a house, you don't have a bathtub, you don't have this ability to just sit in hot water all the time. Would it make it more special? And how far removed have we really become from, from ritual so that there are things just like, you know, things that get misplaced. We don't even, we don't even think about it. We just, I don't know. It's just not part of our life anymore. Yeah, Teresa was uh, recently, like, having one of her uh, – Teresa goes through these spells where everything's hard. Like, <laughs> she wants to work on a skill, doesn't make it happen, and then, like, gets really angry about everything. And then, like, gets overwhelmed by all the stuff she chooses to do. And so we were having a conversation. I was suggesting, like, you know, maybe try to make a ritual out of something. Like, you know, like, all the stuff – one of the things when I was studying Zen that like jumped out at me um, that really uh, I thought was kind of a profound insight was that one thing is not more important than the other. You know, I've mentioned many times and anybody that's kind of encountered Zen has probably heard like the head priest or the head Zen master um, often had the job of like cleaning the toilets or something, something that is usually considered like a lesser job. 
but it's a good practice because it it's a a practice that reminds them that all things are equal equanimity there's not like here's the special job and here's the crap that's just a chore that you rush through so yeah the ritual i think you're on to something with that because you know like i was suggesting to you if you like choose something like what's something that you is a source of frustration for you often um we i uh when i cook I don't have a kitchen with cabinets. I've got a bag for spices. I've got a milk crate of canned goods. I've got a plastic tote of dry goods. You see, so there's like a lot of things that have to be done just to make a meal. And I do have to give you some uh, some credit because you were like, well, that's your ritual then, like getting out all the ingredients before you cook and like, Maybe even putting them on this bench that you built. Did I say that? You might not have said about the bench, but I was thinking it's kind of like my altar, you know, like putting out all the ingredients. Well, it could be. Here's the thing. I guess we need to define what do we mean by ritual. Hmm. I feel like ritual helps us move towards the sacred. It reminds us that something is special and important. So if you're getting frustrated, if you're seeing something as a chore that gets in the way of this other thing, whatever that thing may be that you imagine you would be doing or developing, if it wasn't for this uh, stupid menial chore, I don't think habit is necessarily ritual. But I think it is important, like I was suggesting, you know, like if there's something that's frustrating you, I wonder if you can make a ritual out of it. If it's something that like needs to happen, that kind of enables you to live, that's an important thing. Like, what if, yeah. Like, you're right, the table could be an altar and all these things, but are you using it like that? Because it seems to me if you're using it like that, then you wouldn't have all the, uh, I mean, we all get frustrated sometimes, even with rituals, but a constant just source of, like, uh, this puts me in a bad mood all day kind of thing. I really, like, loathe this thing. It seems like a lot of uh, the things you struggle with are kind of infused with that energy, and I would argue that you're not making a ritual out of that stuff. Oh, no, I'm I'm definitely not. Like, I'm trying to move towards that. So I wouldn't have said that what you're doing already is a ritual. Yeah, you get – okay, I give you credit for giving me the idea to do that. Okay, so, um, yeah, the idea of not taking things that are – like with, oh, Sherlock, the food, not taking things for granted. I mean, imagine if you didn't have food. Like I just said, I didn't have a kitchen. If you didn't have food, how would you treat that food, that meal that you're crafting that is like going to nourish your entire body? So there's, there is definitely levels of disconnect. And uh, yeah, I got to look at that because it, it is a constant practice. And I think one thing that's a common thing that gets in the way of all of us having more things that feel like ritual in our lives is our lives are too damn cumbersome. We uh, are overwhelmed. We allow things that don't need to be in our lives to overwhelm us. For instance, when I used to uh, live in my car by myself, my food was in one box. And so that was one area that, you know, I mean, I kind of had – I wouldn't call it a ritual. I didn't. I never infused it with that sort of uh, import. Um, but it was organized. I, I didn't allow that to overwhelm me. 
Um, I had other things. I'm not trying to like toot my own horn like, oh, I had it all figured out. There were other things I allowed to overwhelm me. Like at the time, I didn't know I could get away with three pairs of clothes. I had a whole bag of clothes I would have to shift around. That was my area of uh, allowing just the way we live to overwhelm me. So I think that's true like in a house too. You know, you were started off talking about the bathtub and how that could be a ritual and it could be simple. Like, I think that's maybe what you were tying it to. We don't need the extra little gizmo and the new technology to try to, like, fix this problem if we don't make something into a problem in the first place. And how do we not make it into a problem? Simplify. You know, really, like, infuse it with that ritual. And, yeah, that was kind of fascinating, like, thinking about, like, looking around at a house. A house is overwhelming. It's it's too big. It's full of... Stuff, as Jack Kerouac said, houses are full of things that gather dust, stuff that largely we don't use. And it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, I, I keep coming back to the word overwhelming. There's too much, it's too cluttered. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I think of a ritual, I think of like a table, and maybe you put this thing with intention here because you need that thing. You put this other thing with intention beside of it, and it always goes right there because it makes sense. You've thought about where that thing's go, that thing goes. And then you perform whatever you're going to do, since we're talking about cooking, maybe just the things you need to cook this meal. And maybe you have some kind of like thing that helps you uh, kind of like focus a lens, focus your mind on like life went into this. I'm eating from the earth. This is a fruit. This is special. This knife, this took a lot of craftsmanship. It would be hard for me to make this knife. I've taken the time to sharpen the knife because I know the knife is important. It's that kind of stuff that I think helps make things a ritual. And it's interesting to watch you, like, I think of, like, uh, Citizen Hobo that we read, and it said that a lot of the uh, hobos in the old times kind of counseled against, like, warned against women. They saw women as like a domesticating influence. So if you got together with a woman, you fell in love with her, um, she gets pregnant and you care about the child that's about to be born, all these things, it's not the woman's fault. It's not like women are evil. But that situation that kind of grows out of a relationship, um, I'd argue, you know, back then it was a relationship was mostly man and woman. But even now, I wonder like, I don't know when you start introducing gender. I'm not, I'm not going to complicate that right now. But it is a domesticating influence. It ties you to a home, and which then ties you into the modern conveniences that everybody around you is buying for their home, which then ties you into what it takes to pay for those modern conveniences. And suddenly, you're completely trapped. And that's exactly what a hobo was trying to escape. And so it's interesting watching you really take to a house. And it's not completely a bad thing but it's interesting how you will have that kind of uh like you're figuring out how to do stuff you're figuring out how the plumbing works and everything and if i ever find myself in a house again that's what i want to bring into it i feel like it was kind of an insight to see like wow she's connecting i think the thing that we like whether we're in a house or out in the woods and we're figuring out stuff better way to build a fire uh, a lashing that holds our shelter together. We're inside. How to drain the tub. How to change the fuses. Both these things have a similar energy that I hadn't really thought about before. You know, I separated the domestic indoor life from the outdoor wildlife. But source is found in both. 
And it's got something to do with like exploring how things work, taking responsibility for the things in your life. And through that, I feel like kind of beginning to declutter. You're not going to be in this house long enough to uh, reach that point where you're decluttering because, <laughs> I mean, it's not your stuff to declutter. Yeah. And yet I feel like there's something of that energy where when you address things as they come up, you're not getting overwhelmed. And I think that overwhelm, the clutter, is the antithesis of what we're after through ritual. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what you been up to, Gumby? Well, I mean, I've been feeling pretty rough this week. It might be, uh, I often feel like kind of rough when I'm suddenly indoors after being outdoors a lot. And the pollen season has been uh, hitting me harder every year. But uh, I have been really throwing myself into pottery. I mean, I've been letting myself get obsessed with it. And it feels good to lose yourself in a skill like that. So I've already talked about in our former episodes how much like this skill in in particular is one of those uh, rare skills that like speaks to me on that really deep level. Like it's a calling almost, you know, I feel like I could really let myself go with pottery. Um, But I've been making a different pot every day. I've got a couple of mugs. I've got... Uh, man. Shot glasses. Shot glasses. <laughs> I've got cups. You know, I'm just making all kinds of stuff. I've only fired one thing so far, which was the bowl, which I uh, talked about in our last episode. But I sealed it with uh, – there's a few ways to seal pottery. When you make primitive pottery, it's porous. So if you pour liquid into it and it just sits there for hours and hours and hours, eventually little drops of that liquid will form on the outside of the pot. It'll It'll come through it. And that's no problem with like – drinking coffee other than just, you know, you get some coffee spilled out or whatever if you leave it in there for a long time. But when you have food or things that have like animal fats in them, that'll get into your pot and it can grow bacteria and it can get, it can actually make you sick. Like most dangers, it's greatly exaggerated. It's not like that's going to happen to everybody or every pot, but it could happen. It's something to, to address. So there's all kinds of different ways you can seal things. One of the good things to to help you is when you make a pot or anything that's going to hold food or liquid, to burnish it with a smooth stone. Really try to smooth it out. And then if on top of that, you paint it with slip, which is like clay that's mixed with water until it's a consistency of like heavy whipping cream. And I learned how to make yucca brushes. So taking a yucca leaf and like making little paint brushes, which was totally awesome. (laughs) And then if you uh, paint on a coat, uh, of that slip on the inside of your pot, maybe three coats, one to one to three coats. That'll also help um, seal it. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you can cook things in it, like really boil it in. Um, oatmeal, grits, cornmeal. Um, the only thing I've tried so far was milk. So I poured my bowl full of milk, let it sit there for a couple of hours. It started getting a little bit dark on the outside, never did get wet, and cooler, so I could tell it was saturated. Then I poured out the milk into another container, wiped out all the extra milk that was inside, and I uh, dipped a rag into the milk in the container and wiped it all on the outside so the whole thing is covered with milk. But there's no standing milk. That's important because when you cook it in, it can kind of like take a long time for that to uh, for you to get rid of that. But it was just completely covered with milk. And then put it in the oven at 450 degrees for an hour. And towards the end of that, you could kind of smell like the milk cooking, which wasn't a great smell. It wasn't horrible. But uh, then you take it out, and it's sealed. It looks glazed. It looks like glazed pottery, and it has no smell. So that smell of, like, cooking milk completely went away as soon as I took it out. And uh, it is 
incredible. It's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, I, I just love that, that like it actually looks like glazed pottery. Mm-hmm. So that's some of the stuff I've been working on this week. We've had a house, so I've been trying to use the resources here. Um, can't build a fire. We're in the middle of the, a town, so I can't <laughs> fire any of my pots. It's just still want that bowl, but now I've got a whole bunch of stuff, and I'm about to head out to the uh, our winter camp tomorrow. Teresa's going to stay here pet sitting, and uh, I'm going to use a few days back out in the country to fire some of this stuff, and I'll let you know how it goes. I got high hopes, but uh, man, it's going to be really awesome to keep doing the experiment to try to seal like another pot with oatmeal, another pot with grits. And I love the experimentation. I love using the different clays, mixing them, different ratios, and just, it's really exciting. And this month, starting in March, um, you know, I've, I've shared with our listeners, I try to take on two skills at a time. Well, the pottery goes on into this month and I'm starting a new skill this month, kombucha making. So I've got some kombucha and some black tea and sugar, and supposedly in a couple of weeks, I'll have a scoby, a kombucha mother. Yeah. Um, and once I grow that, I'll be able to continue making kombucha. So I'm excited to learn about that. Just a lot of really cool, exciting things to learn about. We had experimented with kombucha before. Uh, Gumby asked on, I don't know if it was Craigslist or something, and we actually were given a an already existing scoby to make our kombucha. And I'll tell you what, it was pretty good. The more you neglect your uh, your brew, I think the better it gets up to a certain point. The only time that it kind of got gross was we lived in a, a trailer that like had a mold problem. So it kind of got like moldy after a while. But uh, before that happened, it was delicious. This time, Gumby is experimenting, making it just without an existing SCOBY, but from a store-bought brand that's, I think, in most grocery stores that you go to, the GT's Kombucha. Um, we just got Gingerade because that was, like, the least um, extra ingredients that might, like, ferment or go rancid in it. And this is exciting because Kombucha is expensive and while I enjoy it uh, for just the, the the unique taste it has, it's also, um, I believe, beneficial to my body. And so to have that medicine in our, our food and beverage and be able to make it from, like, you know, we bought this one bottle, but if we don't have to keep buying bottles of it, that would be awesome. Like brewing your own medicine. And man, it's going to be so exciting to have my own clay-fired mug <laughs> that uh, I'm drinking coffee out of. Of course, it's going to be totally exciting. But then kombucha that I've made myself, I'm really looking forward to that. Every little step towards rewilding, towards more independence, towards ritual. You know, it becomes a ritual. All these different skills, they come with like little tools that are special for that skill and there's an invitation to find ritual in that. I can't say, like, I'm being pretty messy with my pottery right now. I'm not treating it like a ritual. But I'm I'm seeing the sacredness in it, the, uh, the specialness, the magic. And if I took the time to, instead of, uh, I'm kind of, like, enjoying getting obsessed and, like, just go, go, go. But I'm also getting pretty damn worn out. I feel like I need to recharge or something. Um, 
the but city man, life. I could really see making a ritual to like take the time instead of just rushing into making a pot to set out my tools, to really think about the water and like what I'm putting it in and to really like, wow, what a beautiful ritual that could turn into. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's there to be found. And like I was saying, you know, it was kind of cool to see that it could be found in a house as well. I, uh, I think I, I knew that in a way, but I'd kind of forgotten it. I'd got so in love with my outdoor lifestyle that I forgot that like, oh yeah, I guess the source is everywhere. You can kind of, I, I think there's a lot more to be said for rewilding, just given so many other factors about our impact on the earth and et cetera, et cetera, the technology. But source is everywhere. Source is that big circle that we're all inside. There's nothing outside of source. All this is expressions of source. And and to be reminded that you can plug into that even fixing the plumbing in a modern bathroom. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely um, as as we've had these little dips into uh, staying in inside. It's always there's always stuff to learn. Oh, one other thing that we realized I think this time. I don't think. I don't think I've gotten that much bigger. I mean, we have found more Krispy Kreme donuts in the dumpster lately. Hundreds of dollars of Krispy Kreme donuts. They're so good. But I find myself bumping into furniture and walls like, oh, right, because we don't really have a lot of that when we are living outside. (laughs) It's such a mess. Like, whenever I'm walking, I'm just, like, hitting things with my hips or with my butt or, yeah, just it's... It's kind of strange being indoors. Yeah. And even though I'm thankful for the, you know, especially when it's a cold rainy day, it's nice to like have a house that you can just come inside and like, you know, watch a movie or something. But as time goes on, I've been inside for a week now. I really like, it doesn't feel good for me. Uh, There's just something, something missing, you know, it's like over time, it kind of has this cumulative effect of like, you know, I was just talking about how you can plug in the source in the house, but it's different. I don't think it's as easy to plug into source in the house. Maybe mm-hmm. I, I think I'm confusing words. Maybe it's not source necessarily. There is something satisfying about learning how things work and taking responsibility and knowing how to fix things. But maybe I, I shouldn't be conflating that with ritual and source because there is something different outside. I don't want to just say it's the same thing as like being outside and cooking over a fire that you could do on a stove inside, I don't know. For me, there is a difference, and I can feel it in my body that when I'm away from that uh, wilder life, uh, I don't know. There's a tank in me that just starts running down that doesn't seem to run down as quickly or as completely when I'm outside. Yeah. I feel undernourished somehow, and I'm not talking about food. We've been eating plenty. Oh, my God. And, And to be fair, too, like this particular place where we stay is right next to a super busy road. And so you can't even really go outside and enjoy how we do in the country because it's just constant, like, revving of engines and beeping and all sorts of noise, noise, noise. And, uh, so I, I am envious in many ways, Gumby. Um, I will say I, I am going to admit the one really nice thing, uh, I, I guess I'm going on record, man, coffee makers though, 
coffee makers, they smell so good. And don't get me wrong, Stephen. Thank you for sending the AeroPress to us. And we really enjoy the coffee from the AeroPress. And it does smell and taste delightful. But there's just something about that coffee maker. I don't know how they did that. Yeah, I must admit, there is something about a coffee maker. And I don't want to admit it, but... uh, Yeah, just that simple little coffee maker. Not even anything special. There's, uh, I wish I could figure out what it is. And that's but, how they get you. Yeah. <laughs> that's how we're finally brought back in. But yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back out there to the winter hobo camp and back to the dog tent, and my little uh, compost toilet. And, <laughs> you know, we fast every Sunday. And every Sunday I try to either increase my meditation or do without something else. Um you know, I, I think I'm going to give up coffee for next Sunday, coffee altogether. I gra- gave up cream and sugar in the coffee, but this coming Sunday, no coffee. Ooh. So I'm slowly moving towards a day of fasting and prayer. That's what I want. It's just a day of like completely like this day, I want to fast completely. I want to renounce. I want to like see how far I can push the renunciation for one stinking day. And prayer, like make everything, that ritual we're talking about. What Mm -hmm. if everything I did in that day was bare bones simplified? I don't have to worry about food. It's a fasting day. So what if every act, every step was a prayer? I mean that, I think that's what I'm I'm moving towards. That's what I'm I'm hoping for. But (laughs) the other week I was fasting and I go to take a shit in (laughs) in the compost toilet. And I've got this Hooters calendar up there. And uh, one of the things that I'm currently fasting from on Sunday is sex. I can't watch anything pornographic. Uh, Teresa and I have to, like, set our, like, wild, crazy sex life aside for that one day <laughs> and somehow not have at each other. It's it's a chore. Mm. And uh, I can't masturbate. So, like, everything's sexual. I'm just like, all right, I can do without this for one damn day. I can do it. But I can't let my thoughts go. Otherwise, I'll lose control. This is a big weakness for me, sex. I really, like, will set an intention, and that temptation will overwhelm me. It's happened again and again and led me astray. So I'm sitting there in the, the compost toilet with my dick out. Here's the, the Hooters calendar, and here's the day I can't have anything to do with sex. So I'm, like, <laughs> desperately trying to shift gears somehow. And here's what my mind gave me. Okay, we're not going to look at these women in scantily clad bikinis sexually. Well, here's something interesting. Look at their belly buttons. Now think about fruit. (laughs) And I had this kind of insight that like an apple or an orange or a cherry has kind of a belly button. And what is that little dimple in a fruit? It's where the stem comes out. And what is the stem? It's kind of the umbilical cord (laughs) to the parent, which is the tree. And so it was, I I don't know if it's a new thought, but it was kind of like hit me on a new level looking at these women and their belly buttons. And we had just done the Hobo Zen podcast. So I guess I had it fresh in my mind of like Siddhartha who loves sex and suddenly had this insight about all the women around him. Like, oh, this is just packaging. I'm I'm after something more meaningful. (laughs) It was like, wow, I see these women as fruit. And it was kind of a beautiful thing. It sounds funny, but it was like, wow, we are so closely connected to all the things around us, even a fruit. You know, like 
you might look at an animal and like, all right, I see some connections there. And that's why I'm a vegetarian, because they have two eyes and everything. But it's okay to eat plants. They're not alive like us. But as I'm looking at the belly button and uh, thinking about the apple and the orange and the cherry and pretty much any fruit, it's like, are we so different? Do we not come from our parents with an umbilical cord, cord attached? And that umbilical cord goes away and leaves a, a mark, a very similar mark that is basically the same thing. It was a tube to nourish us until we could nourish ourselves individually. I just thought that was an interesting fasting insight. I really like that. Now, what do you think about Audis? Because you don't see a whole lot of Audis in that Hooters calendar, I don't think. Well, that's because those people are freaks. No, no. They're hideously deformed and they belong in a circus. No, I've got nothing against Audis. Oh. I mean, it depends on how many inches are we talking. You know, like that might be a duh. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you might need to see a doctor for that. You might need to see a doctor, yeah. Well, uh, as we're in town, we ventured out the other day to a food pantry, and we try to, you know, like space out the food pantries. We're not trying to take advantage, and I certainly don't need to have too much stuff going on because I'm already, uh, I've got like a lot of canned goods, not a whole lot of other stuff, so I'm trying to like make meals based on that. So we go out. And uh, there's this this church that they're so nice. They they have a place, uh, a time that you can come Monday through Thursday. So we usually get there a little early, park in this big parking lot at the back, and uh, and just wait until it's time to to pick up our box of food. Have never been bothered, but this week, um, one, a security guard saw me. I'm not sure if he saw our van or if he saw me because I was picking some dandelions for our dog, Sherlock. And uh, we struck up a conversation and he came over to the van and uh, we had a a long talk about the Bible and about Jesus's teachings. And keep in mind, like, I am not any sort of, like, good, solid Christian person that, like, knows the Bible. Um, I just read it this past summer. So I don't have like things that I can just throw at him in this argument or this discussion. But one of the things that the security guard said was like, uh, what is man-made? Isn't everything made by God? But as I'm looking around in this house, there is a different energy to things that are, you know, like a chair, a table, a lamp, a light switch. It's such a different feeling than looking around when we're at our winter camp at the trees and the birds and the, the, I don't know, moles that are burrowing around in the yard. You know what I mean, Gumby? Yeah, that was an interesting day that uh, Teresa is really, like, good at striking up conversations. Just I mean, she'll fucking announce to, like, a group of people, which she did. We went to eat at a Mexican restaurant, and there was, like, just us, and there was, like, two black guys uh, in line to order their food. And she just announced to everybody that in the room, like, is anybody else having problems with their technology today? <laughs> and so that got us talking with, like, the, the two guys. This was before the security guard. And, uh, you know, they immediately started launching into, like, current events and how fucked up things are. And it's like everybody's seeing it. And it's so gratifying because 
you know, we're being taught all this racist crap, all this divisive crap. And we keep running into people over and over, and this is why I say black guys, because to me, that's important nowadays because of all the anti-racism and all this shit that is being promoted. Um, there's so many people not buying it. There's so many people just out there like, man, this is bullshit. Things are like going bad. And so once again, we ran into the security guard. He was a black guy. And uh, once again, like from a slightly different angle, he's talking about how crazy stuff is. And um, yeah, you're uh, you were talking about like the difference between like the stuff people make and the the stuff that's out in the wild. Um, and this guy raised the question of is there anything that wasn't created by God? But in the Bible, repeatedly, it differentiates. It goes to, to at length, St. Matthew and Jesus, to, to separate the world of mammon, the world of man, from the world of God. I take that to mean the world of God is more the world of what we didn't make, what's already provided. It's the Garden of Eden. It's the purity. It's the stuff that we didn't shape. And the world of man is the stuff that we created. And of course, it's not like so neatly separated. There's things like the pottery, for instance. I'm taking a, a resource, the world of God, and I'm shaping it as a man. So you could say my pot is man-made. So there's sort of a gray area in there. Mm-hmm. But what I, I what he said when I brought that up to him is like doesn't it doesn't it separate the two? He says it's the love of the world of mammon over the world of God. It's not the use of the thing. Hmm. And at first I didn't like that, but then I thought I think I do agree with what he said, but I'm not sure even he really thought through the full implications of that. I think it is the love of those things, but if you have a deep love of the world of God, the Garden of Eden, the creation out there that, that's older, that works without us, it doesn't need us. If you have a love for that, I feel like you naturally will not have so much love left to, to want to chase the newest technology, the video game, the gadget. Because I think about my own relationship with these skills, the pottery, for instance. It's my love of God, of the wild, of that untamed, purer feeling, essence, source that makes me want to learn how to make my own pots hmm. instead of go to a store or invent some kind of technological thing that saves me a chore. The chore, and I'm using quotey fingers, the ritual, the act of sustaining my life with the, the abundance around me is deeply connected with my relationship with God. Okay. So I think on that level, I'm not even sure, like I said, he understood the extent of what he was saying with that, but I think he was right. Because if I love the world of mammon, what what does the woods have to offer me? I, unless I can make money off of it. Yeah. You know, there's it's worthless. It's just like, that's the people that look at like a tract of woods and call that undeveloped land. <laughs> you know, that's the, the language... Of someone who loves mammon. What I was just hearing, like, in between your words right then, Gumby, was like, I don't know if it's actively searching for a connection, but it happens. Because 
when you're interacting with the clay, even when you take it from the ground before you clean it, before you process it, before your hands really get to forming it, you're you're looking at it with your eyes and you're just like amazed by that clay. Like, wow, look at this. It's it's going to become something like a bowl or whatever. But right now, it's beautiful. And I guess that like that is the beginning of like a relationship, like that connection with God. If you don't have that, if you just go to the store and buy a box, a lump of clay from a, like a craft store, I don't think you get that connection. Yeah, it's, it's, it's complex. And I feel like even if I, even if I could find the words, it would still fall short because we're talking about a, a subject that is so uh, deep that I don't think our language serves us for that. But yeah, there's a difference between a store-bought lump of clay and clay that you have gathered from the land around you. And it's a hard thing to describe, but you can definitely feel it. There's one thing connects and one thing becomes a commodity. There's something about the world of man where everything becomes a product, a commodity. We yeah. we, we we even turn ourselves into commodities. Uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, we, I'm working right now, just sitting here. Yeah, we prostitute ourselves for money, whether we trade sex or work or something. Um, we do that to each other. Like, what does that person do for me? Do I want them for sex? Do I want them so I don't have to be lonely? Do I want them because my own company scares me? So it just. Uh, I need somebody else making noise in the other room, and that's their purpose. Like, we treat the whole world like that, and I feel like that's kind of the world of mammon. It's a, it's a, it's an economy. And out there, I don't know. It's, it's, it's the Garden of Eden. It's just so much abundance. It's so much giving. It's like there's something out there that isn't trying to exploit you or trying to sell you anything. It's just giving, giving, okay. giving. Okay. So we're, we're going to take a break, but uh, I, I think maybe one of the last things I want to say before we do take a break here is uh, getting back to the water. Like I mentioned in the beginning of this uh, episode, like the water in the house, it doesn't feel the same. I mean, I know it's rainwater that's in the creeks and rivers and it goes, you know, it happens to go into some facility that then like, you know, it, it is received at the house and it pours out of this tap into the bathtub, but it's like that, uh, that connection, that direct connection. Now there's a middleman, like literally man has come between me and source. So it's more difficult to have that, that intimate, that real relationship with God, uh, and source when you're inside, because there's this, thing in between you and God. Yeah, and I know you're about to cut to a break, but right on the the tail of that topic, I just wanted to mention I'm reading this book right now called Religion is Not About God by <gasps> Loyal D. Rue, I think. Good. I think Segment. his name is. But uh, there's not much I want to say about this book. I don't recommend it. It's really wordy. Um, I feel like it's written by yet another person who their religion is science, <laughs> and they've convinced themselves that science is not a religion. Um, so a lot of it's just got that kind of tone of like, Hey, look at all the big words I can use. Look how I can cheapen everything by explaining it away. Or, uh, it's just, uh, the whole tone kind of turns me off. There's a lot of talk of neurons. 
Yeah. I mean, he just, <laughs> his whole like definition of consciousness and, you know, how sentient animals are. I mean, it's, it's kind of marginally interesting, but I just don't agree with where he's coming from. It's the scientific view of picking and choosing what they see. Mm-hmm. We see this because our science, our religion tells us that. And uh, we don't even entertain that this exists because our science, our religion doesn't uh, entertain this notion. And just like any religion, you know, like if you talk to someone who was Hebrew and mentioned the Muslim mythology, they'd be like, yeah, yeah, they believe some crazy shit. And then you talk, well, what's the mythology in your uh, your practice? Oh, it's not mythology. It's uh, this is the way it is. This mm-hmm. is the divine gospel. Science says the same damn thing. They'll freely talk about everybody else's mythology, but uh, well, what's your mythology? Oh, no, this is the scientific method. Um, this is the way it is. It's our divine gospel. That's why they're changing like the laws of thermodynamics, because the gospel had to change. But one thing in this book I found the most interesting so far, I'm a little over halfway through it, was he talks about where religion came from, how it got started, and one of his, uh, his uh, concepts of where it came from was when we lived in little tiny tribes, hunter-gatherers, we didn't really need any kind of cohesive mythology because we had evolved together, and it was small and more familial feeling. But occasionally we'd encounter other tribes, other groups, and uh, as long as there weren't like a scarcity of resources, say we went to the you know big hunting fields or whatever, we'd get along generally until somebody offended somebody else and the tensions rose, and then it'd be time to part ways. Uh, not always with a big war, a big battle, just, all right, I'm ready to move on. And then we go back. And so... As we began to like form relationships with other tribes, the beginnings of a bigger society, there possibly became a need to um, – we need a bigger umbrella. We need a mythology. We need a story, a narrative. And this kind of reminded me of Daniel Quinn talking about you know, when you give people a story to enact where they're the masters of the world, they will act like the masters of the world. If you give them a different story to enact, then they will act differently. We're enacting a story, and that's what informs all of our beliefs. And so he believes that's the the essence of religion. It's meant to kind of govern us, to provide a cohesiveness of we all share the same values. And he talks about if you don't have that, a society tears itself apart. Mm. And I thought about it through those terms, and man, that is exactly where we're at. When I think about the woke people, we don't share the same mythology. All they can do is look around and see that everybody else is completely wrong because they don't share their mythology. They're not playing by the same rules. Just the way when I look at the woke people, all I see is a bunch of crazy assholes because I don't even understand their mythology. It makes no sense to me. The point is not who's right or wrong in this context. The point is that if we don't – if we live amongst people and we don't share a religion, a mythology, a story – An understanding. We have no cohesion. We can't have cohesion. And so that's part of the danger of what's happening now is I think we are ripping ourselves apart with no real way to repair that connection because we don't share a mythology. And how do you do that? How do you uh, govern people that don't share a mythology? Well, the way it's happening now is you have these different groups that are trying to impose their mythology on other people. Enter cancel culture. Mm. Um, you know, I'll, I guess everybody's kind of trying to do it to some degree, but I, I especially 
feel it from the woke. Um, but yeah, just it's an effort that we all need to live under the same story, the same religion. And so, yeah, it was just kind of interesting. Like that was an insight in that book. Well, I am glad that you shared that Gumby and if it's all right with you, we're going to go to break. All right. See you on the other side. It's almost election season, and the Democratic Party wants you to vote blue. Yes, it's more important than ever as Democrats tirelessly battle against institutional racism. We finally hope to challenge the tyranny of old white men with our candidate, Uncle Joe Biden. He's older and whiter than anybody. Fight fire with fire, eh? But wasn't Joseph Stalin's nickname Uncle Joe? Not according to our fact-checkers. And disagreement is fascism. Many of you may be unaware of the proud history of the Democratic Party, beginning with its founder, President Thomas Jefferson. Democrats have always adored oppressed colored people. I believe that's people of color. Not according to our fact-checkers. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, loved black people so much that he had a collection of them numbering in the hundreds. It was Jefferson's and the Democratic Party's love of the First Nations people that caused them to support the Indian Removal Act and to preserve our red children on reservations, or, as we like to call them, Native American resort communities. We understand that even when other groups and races don't always know what's best for themselves, we do. Now, sometimes you'll hear people criticize the Democratic Party for opposing the emancipation of enslaved colored people of color. Well, I'm here to tell you that it was their love and deep connection to their sun-kissed sisters and brothers that caused them to hold on so tightly, so lovingly, for so long. But weren't a few Democratic presidents members of the KKK? Hey, we've all been guilty of questionable behavior, even a rape or three. But identity shaming isn't our policy. We hate hate. And saying otherwise is hate speech, which we hate. But we shame and accuse people of rape all the time. Not according to our fact-checkers. When we do it, it is called speaking truth to power. To say any different is victim-blaming. Today, we, the Democratic Party, from the security of our inclusive gated communities, continue to celebrate our long association with oppressed peoples. Unless they're white. Those white devils can burn in the Christian hell of which I am far too educated and progressive to believe in. I can confidently say that all white people are evil, and all black people are noble and 100% right about everything. For here at the Democratic Party, we train ourselves daily to judge people not by the content of their individual character, but by the much more visible and reliable color of their skin. This is how you fight racism. But what about Mark Robinson or Clarence Thomas? They're white. Holding any other view is a microaggression. But... It is urgent that we stop the conservative extremists from keeping our colored children from exercising their science-given right to vote. Look, we all know that those people are incapable of figuring out how to acquire a free ID in this evil racist society. Why, I've even seen neighborhoods where good, young, colored men are apparently even denied the basic human right to purchase a belt. Is it really so silly to see a less intelligent, inferior race, weak, helpless, struggling, without their great white gender nonspecific parents, and to yearn to reach out my trembling hand to help? Um, everything you just said was kind of racist. Not according to our fact-checkers. Black lives matter, which is why so many of our liberally supported policies 
strive to keep so many people of color safe and snug within the protective walls of our penitentiaries and institutions. Expressing other opinions is a form of gaslighting. If we were crazy, I assure you, we'd be more than happy to let everyone know it. We support diversity and inclusion. Unless you're not one of us. Then we hope you die. We support my body, my choice. As long as you make the right, approved of choice. Bodies making wrong choices will be publicly shamed, canceled, prevented from basic human rights, and confiscated by the state for reindoctrination. And the Republicans and insurrectionists will stop at nothing to ruin our good name. They've even accused us of hating babies, which is ridiculous, hateful. And an actual point of fact, a form of literal physical violence. We love fucking baby. I mean, we fucking love babies, even gross unborn ones. Here at the Democratic Party, why, just this morning, I used a precious little fetus to wax my electric car, and I gotta tell you, you've never seen such a brilliant shine on a Prius. Hmm. We use fetuses to keep our skin looking young. We eat fetuses with hummus, inject them for medicine. Hell, I've even been known to freebase a fetus or two. No one loves babies like we do here at the Democratic Party. I believe we also champion women's rights, but that's currently pending. A team of our own specially selected biologists is working around the clock in our labs in an effort to unravel that age-old riddle and to finally determine what a woman actually is. I'm pretty sure we'll be for them unless it offends someone. We'll keep you updated. We often champion causes that no one believes in. That whole Latinx thing, for example. We believe in following the science. Our science. Any other science or scientists are dark-age, backwards, deplorable plague-rats, like those anthropologists, psychologists, and the rogue free-thinking biologists, who have always been right-wing conspiracy theorists. They hurt and offend science, and it is only through our unquestioning faith in science that we can ever hope to be downloaded into heaven. The Democratic Party has always been the party of unconditional love. Rainbows. All love is good love. We believe in love deeply, down to the core of where our souls would be. If your heart inspires you to pursue intimate relations with a child, a puppy, a child who identifies as a puppy, or an old man caked with makeup, perfume, who simply enjoys the feeling of a tiny, chubby, sticky hand down his pants, we will defend your goddess-given right to express that love. Hmm. Love trumps hate. We identify as being right about this. And we will continue to wage our heroic war against eco-villainy. Look, sure, we could just change ourselves. We could give up unnecessary luxuries that harm the environment. But we hold the deep conviction that addressing the faults in others will make us feel much better about ourselves. And let's face it, taking responsibility for ourselves is white privilege, and we are firmly anti-racist. So please, if you like the idea of imposing your will on others without their consent, under the threat of violence. Get out to the polls. The tyranny of the majority can only work for you if you vote and win, or appear to win. It's only fair. Donate now to keep spreading this message. More government always makes everything better. For everybody. After all, we'll get your money in taxes anyway. But trust us, it goes down better if it feels voluntary. Together, we can upright this upside-down, inverted, topsy-turvy world and put it right-side-up down on its head again. This ad is approved of by Wholesome Butter-Based White People. Welcome back. So, what is up with that giant fake titty teacher in Canada? Kayla Lemieux? Isn't it that uh, Traf- Trafalgar High School? Trafalgar? So, I mean, something like that, yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm sure you've heard of this teacher who's like a shop class teacher, technology type dude. And I say dude because he is supposedly transitioning and wearing um, giant prosthetic breasts. Gumby, you brought him up in an earlier He teaches about technology? I thought he was a shop teacher. Well, like, I guess they call it kind of technology even though it's shop. Huh. Yeah. Technology, like, probably... I don't know, working with saws and drills and shit. Yeah, we had talked about him in another episode, and uh, it's apparently he just started wearing these ginormous, like St. Bernard-sized <laughs> boobs, these prosthetic <laughs> boobs, and uh, identifying as a woman. So recently, apparently, like, what, a neighbor complained that he uh, apparently reported on him and said that when he's not at school, he doesn't dress up like that. So... The response was the interesting thing. And would you share, like, what you read and what you learned about his response, like what he said and, like, what they're what they're talking about? Well, there was a picture that was supposedly uh, this guy without his, like, signature boobs and wig on. And um, he denied that that was him but then cleverly said that he wouldn't name who it was because he didn't want to bring anyone else into this situation. And when asked, like, what's up with the big boobies, he said, like, oh, these are real. And um, it's a <laughs> it's like some condition called gigantomastia or something, which is very rare. And uh, unfortunately, this guy doesn't have it documented uh, as a medical whatever, medical illness or whatever. So, And he said he was intersex too, right? Yeah, oh yeah, that he wasn't transitioning at all. He was actually born intersex. So all this, you know, <laughs> in like five years ago, what we've already told you would be shocking. But all this is pretty par for the course these days. Here's the part that interested me. Now, his story, and this is being reported as if, you know, it can't be disproved, is that, he always had those boobs. Now, there's been widespread protest at this <laughs> high school because suddenly, about a year ago, the shop teacher suddenly had ginormous breasts that everybody assumed must be prosthetic. I don't know if anybody's actually checked, but they've been called prosthetic. <laughs> it's like, what else would they be? Gigantomastia. He is saying he's always had that. He's got this condition called gigantomastia. And apparently, nobody's correcting him. He's also, didn't he say that, like, he has always identified as a she or something like that? I don't remember that specifically, but go on. Well, there were two things you had mentioned, the boobs and something else that I was like, well, they have have to have it on record. I thought that he said he was always a she, and I'm like, well, they had to, oh, I know what it is. The picture of him that they have, and he's saying, that's not me. Yeah. Somebody saw him a year ago. Like it's like <laughs> it's like if you're uh, uh, somebody you worked with just suddenly one day showed up with huge fucking boobs, a guy you worked with, and uh, said, "What are you? What are you talking about? I've always had these. It's a condition I have." And you're like, "But you're a man." And he's like, "No, I've never been a man. I'm a, I'm a woman." And everybody just went along with it. And then. When someone showed a picture of him, like what, how he looks right now in your life, people would be like, who's that? <laughs> now, 
No, right? Right? Am I missing anything? Well, and you couldn't like, find any information on like any any source that proved that yes, this man had ginormous boobs before. I mean, what could be easier to prove? He either fucking had huge uh, human size, like uh, just crazy, like these Jugs. things. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I say like St. Bernard's, I'm not just saying that. Like they're about the size of what, what breed of dog? Be realistic. I don't. I don't know. German Shepherds. They were huge. Know. They're big. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're big. And people are acting like they can't prove whether it was always like that or not. He's like a microcosm of the entirety of this situation. Just all like the 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 crux of it. He's all of it. This level of disconnect, of unreality is, I don't know if it's an isolated incident, but I don't think it is. It's something new. Like, this is blatantly erasing history, right? I mean, right in front of you. This, this, is, this is 1984. I know that gets overused, but holy crap, it keeps getting truer and truer. Okay. In, I think it was 2021... Um, this Daily Mail UK article was saying that uh, the same shop teacher that we're talking about with the giganto boobs um, went to a recital at I don't know if I don't think it was the school that he was working at, but it was some like child's recital. He didn't have any like any kids that had invited him, and uh, the parents were concerned because he showed up with the prosthetic boobs and the wig. And they said, like, you need to leave because we don't feel comfortable with you here. I think he was maybe wearing these boobs and the wig and stuff before he started wearing it to work. But I'm not 100% sure. And there's a lot of, like, people posting stuff and and nobody has, like, a real source um, for where that information came from about, like, that he was trolling. But even if he isn't, it's just kind of masterful how how this world works. Isn't it great? Mm-hmm. No, I wouldn't call it great. <laughs> but it sure is interesting. I mean, I, I personally think this dude is a uh, protester of some kind. I think he's trying to push this woke ideology to such an absurd level that everybody sees. He's trying to bring attention to like, okay, this is what you believe. Well, how, what am I doing wrong here? And I think, I, th- I bet this guy at this point is himself surprised <laughs> that he could push it this far. I bet he's just like going home and fucking drinking too much and just shaking his head and like, oh my God. What did I get myself into? <laughs> I thought they would just like raise a big issue and like that would be over. But and didn't you say there's at least one person that said that he told his class that he was going to get fired because yeah. he wasn't woke enough? Yeah. And so he told a class, according to one source. What was that source? I don't know. I don't remember. Do you remember if it was an individual or like a classmate or a student? It was like on a YouTube um, comment, I think. And there were people that were posting that who knows who they are, but they supposedly were from, some of them were from 
that area. Like they might have gone to the school or like had kids that went to the school. Yeah. So we don't know for sure, but this one source anyway said that he had told a class that uh, he was about to get fired because he wasn't woke enough. And so he was going to do all this stuff. So, yeah. But it's just – it is such a mirror he's holding up to our culture. You know, this is in Ontario, but the United States has the same culture, you know. I feel like Ontario or uh, Canada is kind of running a little further with the wokeism. I heard somebody say that things start in the United States, but Canada always tries to push it further, go further with it. And uh, that certainly seems to be true with wokeism. It's got like kind of American entitlement and – Canadian perseverance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's definitely got the stamp of America on it, but yeah, Canada's running with it. Mm. So go Ontario. Yeah. So yeah, whether or not this guy, whether it ends up that he is like a creepy pedophile, pedo, um, or he is a master Now are you just level, saying that or is somebody troll. thinking he might actually be a pedophile? Just because he's fucking nuts doesn't mean he's necessarily having sex with kids or wanting to have sex with kids. Well, I was just saying, like, the range, the whole entirety of the range of what this could be. Um, He might just be some guy that has a mental illness and, like, thinks that he's a woman. Not sure why. I don't know. But somewhere on that spectrum. Whether or not he is or he isn't, like, a master-level troll... um, I think it it is just really uh, poignant. I don't think I could have written it better myself. Yeah, whether he's doing it on purpose or whether he's this is just his psychosis. I mean, it's definitely bringing to light uh, how crazy the culture has gotten. It, it's the the la, It's the complete like you tried to find some kind of information. <laughs> Would you talk about that? Hey, you did all. I mean, you've been reading these stories for like hours. Like, <laughs> don't make me talk about it. God dang it. Uh, I was just trying to figure out if the guy's real name is Carrie, K-E-R-R-Y, Luke, L-U-C, Lemieux. Same last name as Kayla Lemieux. And uh, it was said that on the school website where he works, um, they removed the list of faculty and staff. So I went to like the Wayback Machine that you can look at websites from like snapshots of websites from years gone by. And I guess someone, I'm guessing from the school district, um, made sure to like report those images so they're no longer available of the, uh, the list. You can look at the list of staff up to a certain year and then it's erased. Um, why? Is it because there was this other guy that um, they mistakenly thought it was this guy, Stephen Hanna, who was like another shop teacher at the school? Hmm. Poor guy. Could you imagine? People probably were like looking him up and sending him really nasty messages. But anyway, the world is uh, going crazy. And what were we talking about that story where um, the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> yeah, it's like the emperor has no dick. <laughs> and like it we're is. We're looking at this guy and we're like, he's a dude. He's a fucking yeah, yeah. dude. I feel like that's part of like what this guy is showing, whether on purpose or not, is that 
it's not metaphorical anymore. We are literally living <laughs> the story of the emperor has no clothes. We are looking at a blatant lie, and all of us are agreeing with it, except for like fringe elements that are just like, but he's naked. <laughs> But I, I, we all saw him a year ago. He was a dude without ginormous breasts. But now he says he's always had them, so I must be wrong. Yeah. Are you fucking crazy? <laughs> well, of course you're fucking crazy. But here's another thing we were talking about we were exploring is I feel like it's a big mystery how this craziness gets this much power. I haven't heard people get into this explanation in a way that I thought was good yet. The question for me is the, all this trans stuff. It's blatantly crazy. Blatantly. And why the recruiting? Why would it, wouldn't, wouldn't it just be live and let live? I just want to live the way I, I want to. And uh, it doesn't matter if we think, you know, I feel like in the 90s we were kind of at a point where like, all right, I can think that's gross and I can think that's weird as hell. But uh, I don't feel any obligation to have to get to know my neighbors. I'll just ignore you. Maybe if I'm really friendly, I'll wave if we make eye contact. But whatever. It was kind of a live and let live atmosphere. Yeah, even if you were like right on for, you know, like living your truth, but then like don't make me live your truth with you. Yeah. And at some point, I feel like part of the the scales getting tipped was the recruiting. Suddenly, this group really, really wanted to spread and somehow had unlimited power to affect media to – uh, just really spread this agenda, this idea. What the fuck? How did that happen? Everybody will tell you that the trans community, people that actually like, uh, or at least back then, definitely was a small minority, like a fraction of a percentage. So if you, as I do, believe that these are insane people, people that are literally think they were born in the wrong body, I think that's a mental illness. I know that's a uh, unpopular opinion in some places these days, but I don't care. That's a mental illness. You were not born in the wrong body. You can feel uncomfortable in your body. You can uh, do what you want to with your body. You can break social norms, but it's your body. That's part of you. That disassociation is a mental illness. How... Did that small group of crazy people <laughs> say something so blatantly crazy as if, as in, I am a woman, and they're right there in the gym locker room with you. There's their dick, uh, and they're saying, I'm a woman. How did that convince everyone? That's the mis- one of the big questions I've never heard really answered to my satisfaction for me. Because I remember when that started spreading, and it's like, all right, I hear that like you want to protect rights. I hear that uh, everybody's equally valuable, all that. Yeah, sure, but that's a lie. It's just not true. And I remember when that started not to matter, and that was bizarre. I, I was just wondering, like, how the hell is the news suddenly go? what? <laughs> how did that happen? Then it just took us like a fucking wave, like snuck up behind us, and then just boom, it's here. Whole new paradigm. Would you say that would be about 2015 or so? Like that acceleration? Something like that. Well, I that's could, what a lot of people say, like 2015, 2016. If I look through my Facebook archives, I could track it down to almost the year. But I would think it's uh, around that. Yeah. Because something happened then that the whole strategy changed. 
And uh, we were kind of considering, like, I personally believe there is a secret order behind stuff. I know that that makes people think conspiracy theory. It even makes me feel like I'm, I'm talking about a conspiracy theorist when I talk about a secret organization that's pulling the strings. But they made that link for us. They, uh, people that are behind like the, the propaganda, promote memes, promote uh, a link between those two words that everybody thinks, wow, that sounds like a conspiracy theory. But here's the thing. I've read Bernays. Edward Bernays, widely known as the father of modern propaganda. He was hired by the government. He helped Coolidge get elected. I mean, he was like friends with presidents, actors. He was widely famous. Everybody wanted to learn his techniques for marketing because they worked, not just for marketing, for governing, for all kinds of stuff, social engineering, social engineering. And one thing he repeatedly says in his books is the most effective way to lead is behind the scenes, not the person that's out front. That's not the leader. That doesn't make any sense. That would be stupid. It makes no sense to me that somebody wouldn't have uh, everything else, all of his ideas, change the way we do marketing, the way we do news, the way movies are made, uh, everything. And keep something in mind, and I know this is going to sound like a – hold your thought. Edward Bernays wrote books. These books are old books. They're from before the internet for definite and sure. 40s, 50s, around there. And these ideas have had time to, like, I don't want to say fester, but, like, grow and grow and get stronger, you know? So who's to say if there isn't some new world order or whatever? Well, I I am positive. I feel sure there is because it doesn't make any sense there wouldn't be. You know, everything else, all these uh, these strategies, they work. So why would someone just, what, out of common decency, like, oh— no, that's we're we're going to lead in the ineffective way. <laughs> so Bernays is right about everything, but let's keep doing the ineffective way of world leadership because that would just be. I just feel a little wrong about that. Distasteful. Yeah, really. I started having bad dreams, <laughs> and I, I just can't do it. I can't do it. Bullshit! What kind of naivety is that? Of course, there's a secret order. So. Back to the trans issue, how did such a minority of crazy people fucking get so much influence that they changed world culture in such a short time? I believe it's somebody with the kind of power, like a secret organization, that has that kind of influence, and I don't get, think they give a shit about the craziness. They don't give a shit about the delusion. They don't give a shit about people accepting their delusion, because the only explanation I've heard from like Josh Slocum and people like that is what the trans are doing, why they're pr- promoting, recruiting, why they want to spread, is because they're crazy and they want everybody else to agree with their insanity. Or like to make it seem like it's an innocent thing. It's not a perversion or a fetish. But that makes no sense. Mental illness. Because once like... again, let's go back to a fraction of 1%. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Let's imagine that is that they personally want that. They're crazy. They want everybody else to agree to it. Fraction of 1%. That's a huge leap that they just changed world culture. Yeah. Something's missing. A big thing is missing from that puzzle that not many people talk about. And I think it's that secret organization that Edward Bernays said, if you want to do lead effectively, this is how you do it. It makes sense. And I don't think they give a shit about the delusion. I think it's the disassociation with our bodies. I think that is key. I think this transhumanist uh, push, uh, look at something else that's happening now. Huge, huge leaps in technology, but culture-defining technology. 
I don't think these are just separate things. I think they're all pointing to uh, what the changes we're going through. And I think a big part of that is disassociation with our bodies. That will completely like uh, enable us to um, become dependent in a, in a oh, what am I trying to say? Dependent and interacting with this technology in a way that humans have never even come close to before, and it's already happening. Neuralink. People are getting fucking brain implants. People are like changing what they are in a, a fundamental way. Oh, I just saw an article about um, people who are like paralyzed from maybe the neck down, and they're implanting these this new technology of some sort in their blood vessels, and they can actually move things like cursors or or some other type of device with their mind. That's crazy. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, the, of course, we're always sold the benefits of those things, like, you know, people that Oh, it's have... for the poor, you know, people who are paralyzed from the neck down. That's, I mean, that is awful. That's tragic. But is it like all of the money poured into that technology for that, once again, very minute fraction of the population or is it for some bigger agenda it's a very juvenile short-sighted well maybe not i'm thinking of like zuckerberg's wife who wants to cure all diseases and like this technology that will fundamentally change the human experience for everyone you don't uh, you don't have to actually get these implants for your whole life to change because the world is accepting them it's happened with cell phones tell me whether you have a cell phone or not and i bet you do but tell me your life didn't change because of them or the internet. I don't know how you'd be hearing this podcast if you don't use the internet, but let's assume you don't. Tell me your life didn't change because the world accepted the internet. Yeah. So likewise, this changes everybody. And it's so short-sighted because these illnesses, like the, you know, we were just talking about uh, the Buddha, his path. And he was trying to escape from death, old age, disease. But part of his understanding wasn't a transhumanist like, I need to invent something. It was, I need to change my relationship with these things. What I found underneath that thing, the problem was not death, disease, and old age. It was that I misunderstood what they were, what I was, what all this is, what's happening. I It was a complete misunderstanding of this whole situation. That's what he discovered. (laughs) It's the opposite of the transhumanist. The transhumanists want escape from the very same things Buddha was trying to escape from. <laughs> but they're like actually thinking there's a, a sensibility in defeating these things. That's insanity. Death is a part of us. We can't defeat these things without defeating ourselves. It's part of humanity. If we defeat death, disease, and old age, there's nothing human left. And that's where we're headed. And you know, I don't want to villainize the secret society I'm kind of depicting right now because it occurs to me, I, I don't find it plausible that there's people rubbing their hands and, you know, t- curling their mustaches and going, <laughs> I don't think it's like that. I think the secret society actually thinks they're doing good. I think they're looking at it like, look, if it's not our responsibility to fix all the shit that's happening in the world, whose is it? We're the ones pulling the strings. We've been doing it for a century. And these people, let's face it, 
Most of them are too stupid to accept the changes, even though they'll benefit from it. I was thinking earlier, you know, even if, like, you don't want to be immortal, what if, to their way of looking at it, like, if we get everybody online, and then if you want to die at 80, you just hit the, that option. You hit the button. You check out. You go offline. You can do whatever. You, you're free to do whatever. But they're missing the whole point. That's not freedom. Mm. They, they, they have sucked the humanity out of it. And, you know, I don't know what the secret society may or may not think, but I do know that the people around me, uh, I guess I'm describing kind of a philosophy I'm seeing more and more, is people don't get it. It's like they, they've moved so far from what humanity is yeah. that all they see is the machine. And I got to wonder how much they have become the machine already. Whether you put the fucking microchips in their bloodstream or whatever, that's just a, a I don't know, an extra thing. They're already part of the machine. Mm. Okay, this might not come out uh, as smoothly as I'd like, but I'll try. Nah, I bet you said that this morning ah. with, your, with your hurt butt. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're going to make me forget. It will be all for naught. Okay, the difference between what the Buddha was saying about freeing himself from death and suffering and, and old age and the transhumanist, like that difference... To me, it's comparable to the difference between, like, what I feel is my connection to things that are man-made surrounding me in a home, like in a house, and how I feel about the connection when I'm outside. Do you know what I'm saying? Did that come out at all right? Or coherent? Say it in a different way. I kind of got it. I mean, I guess I'm just saying that... Um, when you were talking about like how people are missing the point, it made me think about that fast track of the, the transhumanists who it's like not about living forever. It's like living to the fullest. Yes. And I'm, I'm more sympathetic than I used to be with the people that, uh, miss that because I will even start to, You know, we were talking in the first half of this episode about the difference in feeling like being in a house and being outside, and uh, I will start to lose – like you talked about before, you forget – start forgetting to look up. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because when you're outside, you're – I mean, you're always looking up. There's birds flying overhead, the weather. Like, my God, you better pay attention to those clouds and stuff. You're always noticing stuff up. At night, the stars are up, the planets, the moon, different phases. There's always reasons to look up. Even the plane's flying over, you know, you just want to see, did that look like a damn drone? Is there a chemtrail behind it? Um, Oh, my God. And if you haven't looked up in the night sky lately, Jesus fucking Christ, man, there's so many satellites. It just, it it ticks me off. It's a super highway. But, yeah, the little changes like that. So I get how they don't get it. Because if you don't live like that... It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how sharp your memory is. There's something – it's not about remembering. It's not an abstract thing. It's a direct connection. Yeah. So if your hand isn't on the pulse of nature, it's almost like you can't hold on to it. You can't abstract it. Once you lose that touch, something starts to drift away. And it's just – it's kind of startling to me that I can even feel that in a week – Mm-hmm. Of not being outside. Yeah, like you said, your, I your know battery better. was being drained. Yeah, intellectually, I totally know better. And yet still something happens. I can feel it. 
And it's weird. Yeah. So documentarians in the future, take note of that. Mm-hmm. You can feel it within one week of being away from your natural habitat. Mm-hmm. And hey, while we're talking about nature, I got something that's kind of a uh, crook, uh, uh, awkward segue. Okay, but... don't fart though. <laughs> All right, I got something else to talk about. <laughs> Whew, man, we were uh, working with the kids today. Like we do a class on Friday, and uh, one of them farted. And like, if you've been around kids, you know that there's a difference in kid farts and adult farts, right? <laughs> you yeah. can tell a kid fart. Yeah, it's. Yeah. And it like, don't smell like Cheerios. Mm, no, it's not fresh. Yeah. I don't know what y'all feeding them kids, it but... It smells like somebody shit themselves. <laughs> and here's the tracker in me. Last week, that same kid farted. <laughs> and <laughs> I ignored it last week. It's like, that's foul, but nobody's saying anything. I can let this go, just like he did. <laughs> Because you know it's a he. But this week, I was in a tight little (laughs) circle of kids, one of whom farted on the ground, and I was showing them how to tie a tripod. (laughs) And man, I'm like, I'm not keeping this quiet anymore. I'm like, somebody, one of y'all farted. And I had my mouth open. You ate that kid (laughs) fart. Oh my God. And we finally got him to laugh at the word fart. Yeah, they yeah. really are kids. They're real. <laughs> That's how you check a kid <laughs> in the age of androids. If they don't laugh at farts or something about farts, man, yeah, they that might be a uh, proto-human. Man. But this class is pretty cool aside from the farting. Um, <laughs> one of the things I'm enjoying about this class, and this is what I was actually trying to talk about, not the farting. Okay. But I've only got six weeks with these kids, and I've only got two hours a week, which... You know, I've said before, that's frustrating. It's frustrating that kids all are learning, like... Science, technology, engineering, Reading, science, technology, all the things that supposedly are going to give them a good career. Because their parents, that's how we've all been taught to see survival. Their parents want to give them what parents have always wanted to give their kids from the beginning, the best chance at survival. The thing is, the situation's changed. It's been changing. Like when it started changing to get people to think in terms of economics instead of knowing how to do things around your own home and in your own life as the best means of survival. That was a big change. And we were all born into that change. That was a weird turn in history. We were just born into the middle of it, so it seems normal to us. Now another change is happening where society is collapsing. Things are breaking down. More and more, it's disintegrating. And it's hard for parents to adjust that the best shot to give their kids at survival is survival skills. <laughs> it turns out I know. Out it it's doesn't actually... it, it, it seems like those two things would go together and they do. Yeah. Survival and survival skills. But yeah, I mean I, I wish kids were looking for like more time, more focused I don't even know. I don't even know the best way to teach this stuff, but I know they need it. Mm-hmm. And anyway, I've got six weeks, two hours a week with these kids, about seven or eight, depending on who shows up. But I'm thinking, what are skills that I can pass on to them that have the most wide-ranging implications? Now, if you do any kind of bushcraft, or even if you don't, you've got six weeks, two hours a week with the kids, and you want to give them six skills that you could reasonably teach. Uh, how old are they? 
Uh, maybe like from age 8 to like 14, 15 maybe. Yeah, yeah. So around that age range. And what would you teach him? If you don't know the answer, pause this right now for a minute. Think about it. Six things that would have the most wide-ranging uh, skills to help set them up for the future. Now, of course, I'm teaching outdoor stuff. The first thing I taught him was a clothespin because you can whittle like a little piece of wood, and if you can find a rubber band or a hair tie, you've got a clip. And I can't tell you how many times in my life that I've needed a clip. <laughs> I mean, it's not just for hanging up clothes, right? Yeah. We put up the curtains with it. We're always getting a clip for something. I put up my toothbrush like yeah. to keep it off the ground. That is a skill that has wide-ranging uses. If you uh, pull a grommet out of your tarp, you could get a really strong clip. Well, I haven't showed him the like strong method of the clip yet, but yeah, yeah it's kind of the, the first thing. I also like that it gets them looking at what they uh, might see in a parking lot different. You're always seeing hair bands mm-hmm. and rubber bands. So I like that like it's got the scavenging aspect. Just give them like one or two things to look for and watch how it changes their eye. Mm-hmm. And today, another wide-ranging, like, man, what can I give them confidence in? I drilled them like over and over in different teams. And in different locations. Different locations <laughs> to build a tripod, how to lash a tripod. Because, man, when I learned how to do a tripod with confidence and then started studying all the things that I could build that I really wanted to use... The tripod kept coming up from chairs to a, a card table I built to a bathroom stand to multiple shelters um, to a hammock stand. Just so many uses for the tripod. Not to even mention what most people use a tripod for is cooking. Yeah. Hanging a pot from it. And you can just lower it to heat it up and raise it um, and still have the big fire without something in the middle of it that might tip over to get warm by in the winter. It's really a great thing. So. Yeah, it took me a while to figure out that uh, having the, the pot up off of the fire so you could also enjoy the fire. Mm-hmm. And I was it was like, what's a tripod for? Oh, now I get it. And I loved when, like, uh, we explained to him that you could take two tripods and then put a strong stick between them, like start to build a shelter. The ridge pole. Yeah, I think that their imaginations really took off with that. So what I want to teach them next week Another wide-ranging skill is survival cement. Oh, yeah. How to gather mud from somewhere where you don't have to dig a hole in the ground and damage stuff, but like a big fallen tree, just take clogs of it and crush it up, make dirt, put some water in there, make mud, and then take like an equal part of some kind of leafy stuff, leaves maybe if that's what's <laughs> around, and then just get your bare feet in there if it's a pretty day or mix it up, oh, that's and you've got survival so cement, fun. and you can build a whole shelter with that. You can build a fireplace. You can build an oven. It's just one of those things that once you know how to do it, it's like, wow, all right, here's another use for it. You're, you like went up a couple notches in the uh, zombie apocalypse mm-hmm. team, a team. So, yeah, I'm just uh, – it's a cool challenge to – I don't know what I'm going to do. i got three more classes after that, but to think of like what has the most bang for the buck since I've only got two hours to teach survival. That's only a total of 12 hours. Yeah, 12 hours. To, to teach a group of kids like that in that way, that's pretty remarkable. And there's so many directions you could go. There's so many things they need to learn about, like identification, you know, to be a good naturalist. Yeah. Or 
their relationship with the woods. Oh, man, kids, uh, we're born connected to nature. I can see that because you can turn that on in a kid so easy. Any kid, inner city kid, any kid, you can connect them to the woods because the connection's already there. You're just flipping on the switch. You're just showing them. Yeah. But sometimes to cultivate that connection into a healthy relationship, kids don't have the skills for that. I've also seen that. That's why boys like almost always, um, especially boys, go through a cruel stage where they'll like drop frogs out of windows. Burn ants with burn a ants with a magnifying glass. Yeah. I went through a stage where I was shooting birds with a BB gun. Uh, boys just go through that. And we need teachers to help them like, look, I see that part of what you're doing is because you're connected to nature. That hunting instinct is in you. But you need to learn how to have a healthy relationship with nature. This is not healthy. Yeah. And to a, a lesser degree of that, um, there's one one kid that he he gets really easily distracted. But, Gumby, you and I were talking about the other day how uh, scouts or, or kind of like how I enjoy going out into the woods mm-hmm. and just wandering around. And I'm like, oh, oh, I think those are bones over there. Or, oh, what's, you know, what's that washed up on the shore or underneath this old, like, pile of metal or something? So that kid, it's not that he's a bad kid, of course. He's just, he doesn't have uh, the right tools to, to focus and hone that energy. Mm-hmm. So he today he was like, oh, what's that? Like, you know, what's that over there? What's that? Is that a milk jug floating down the river? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like a plume of foam from the trees or the saponins. Saponins. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was drink. just thinking about like you like to wander by yourself in the woods and now you got a hurt butt. Like, mm. I wonder if those two things are related. I was mm. told there are no coincidences. <laughs> Oh. All right, Teresa, what else do you want to talk about? Just um, briefly revisiting, I'm not sure what you have, but just revisiting that uh, that morning, uh, what was that, yesterday that we were out and talking to those guys when we were getting our Mexican breakfast. Oh, you mean uh, the different guys that you were the starting two black to guys? Yeah. Um, and the one guy was like, we started having this uh, longer conversation about like the end of the world, you know, and he was just like, man, I just most of the time I just don't even talk anymore to people because like they think I'm crazy. Like they think I sound crazy because I'm seeing that the world is going to shit. So I just keep my mouth shut. Yeah, big dude. Like he was some kind of look like road worker or something. He had mm-hmm. that uniform and the orange vest. I think he has a landscaping company. Yeah. What was his name? Well, I don't want to tell his name because it's very unique. It is. Oh, that's true. Yeah. The unique name might. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Cool it was, guy for the time that we were talking to him. Yeah. Everybody we talked to the other day was uh, really cool and it was so interesting what they had to say. But you said you wanted to revisit that. I don't want to hijack what you wanted to revisit. I mean, (laughs) it just strikes me as strange that there's a lot of people thinking that um, this world is kind of crumbling around us. And a lot of us, a lot of us, I'm just talking about myself, not Gumby, are, we're keeping our mouths shut. (laughs) 
I didn't think that. I ain't keeping my mouth no, shut. No, I. I didn't think that the the crumbling of civilization or whatever you want to call this of our species, I didn't think it was going to sound like this or look like this. It's just people are kind of, you know, just kind of keeping quiet about it. Yeah. See, I think people... Uh, I think people are trying to kind of keep their heads down and, like, weather this. And I think the difference between the people that are speaking up, well, one difference, there's a lot of differences. Um, Some people just are more prone to speak up and some people are more prone not to. But one big difference is the people that are speaking up know that what's happening now isn't something you're going to weather. This isn't going going away. This isn't a passing cloud. This isn't a fad. This is an important defining turn in our culture with wide-ranging implications. And I think that's why you need to speak up because you need to, to, I don't know, do whatever it takes. At least let your voice be heard. There is so much crazy shit going on. And uh, keeping your mouth shut, I feel like, I don't know, I would feel like I was losing my soul. I would, something would feel deeply wrong with not speaking up. That's why I speak up. Sometimes people think I like to argue. I do find an interest interesting sometimes when you disagree with somebody. But it's not that I like to argue exactly. It's more that like there are things that just uh, need to be addressed that are just blatantly crazy. And I can't believe people are getting away with it. That's what I meant about the whole trans thing. When uh, men started going into women's bathrooms, that whole bathroom bill, that was the big thing in here in North Carolina. Um, I just couldn't believe it. Everybody, like, everybody in the world knows about that, I think. Wow. I'm not trying to sound like a narcissist. I think yeah. that got out. That's when I started hating Bruce Springsteen. Like, <laughs> I still like his music, but he was like, oh, well, if you're not going to let men in the women's bathrooms, well, you bigots can't listen to Born in the USA anymore. And that's when I knew that <laughs> Bruce Springsteen, I thought he was like hardworking, you know, working class Joe. Yeah. He was a rich little bitch. And he he does a podcast with Obama now. Yeah. The boss, my ass. Yeah. Yeah. He could be the boss's bitch. He'd be the boss of your ass. Then oh. you'd have a good excuse for a hurt butt. Oh. And I uh, got bossed. And the other guy that we were talking to um, at the church parking lot, he was saying like, "This isn't the end." Yes, I was thinking about that. He said, I don't think this is the end. Everybody's talking about like this is the end. I don't think it is. And uh, yeah, we were kind of, we had gotten done with our food and we were sort of like heading out at that point. But it was interesting. I didn't quite know how to approach that. I didn't quite know what he meant either. Well, that, no, I thought it was the um, the security guard that was like talking with us about the Bible a lot. And he was saying like, no, I was talking about the road crew guy. Oh, oh. He was saying also that this he doesn't feel like this is the end. And you brought up what you had painted on a previous vehicle. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, one way of taking that, this isn't the end. Like, the, I guess most people would think of, like, the end of times, the end of the world, the end of civilization is uh, it always is the end. Everybody who has said, like, this is the end, the world's going to end, their world did end. We just always think it's something different. Mm, yeah. 
But every world, every life, everything ends. It's a constant, never-ending end. And there's also a never-ending beginning. Because every time something ends, something begins. So both things are happening at all moments. So it may sound like, you know, too abstract. Like, oh, right, that sounds like nice poetry, but what's that got to do with shit? (laughs) Because it changes your outlook. You know, like you can get really caught up in like a fixation on the end. But it helps you see the other side of reality. Like this is also the beginning. For instance, I'm not really super focused on the end. I balance that because the beginning is kind of what motivates my survival skills. I'm not really imagining I'm like trying to get ready for like the fall of society or whatever. That's not what I'm what motivates me. It's more the beginning of living closer to beauty and getting back to things that make sense, that connect, that nourish. Preach it. Yeah. So, yeah. What was on your car? That's why it's important. I I had the beginning is near written, like, spray-painted on the hood of my car. And we drove around like that for, what, like two years? Something like that. (laughs) And it it was cool because sometimes I'd pull up to a place and there'd be a dude on a street corner maybe asking for money or just there. And everybody would interpret that differently and kind of, (laughs) like, like it. You know, like, oh, wow, that that means something to me. And then it would mean something different to somebody else. Somebody interpreted it to call the cops on us. No, that that wasn't the beginning is near. We what had, was that? We had parked a car on the side of the road to a, like where a river that we would walk down to. And what I used to do in this car that had like... No, it was just totally normal. Go ahead, tell them. Yeah, the beginning is near and all kinds of shit painted like on it. anarchy sign on anarchy the top. Anarchist symbol on the top. Like the whole, the whole size of the roof. But I had dumpster dived this creepy looking like rag doll that was about my size. <laughs> And so anytime I left the car, I would set the rag doll up in the driver's seat with her hands on it. And apparently one of the people in the neighborhood drove by and like saw this creepy doll in the driver's seat with, with the, beginning. the beginning is near and just decided that was a see something, say something kind of situation. I, I really can't fault them, though. You know? <laughs> I really can't. I don't. I don't know if I'd be comfortable with that car, like sitting in my property with my house right there. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know, but I know when we walked back up to that car, the cops were like circling the car and trying to figure <laughs> out what the hell they were looking at. And so we just kind of. They. I think they were confused. I think we just skirted on out of there because <laughs> they didn't know what the hell to do with that. Oh nope, she's just watching the car for us. Okay, well, I guess we'll just cancel the uh, the detonation team. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tell the bomb robot to go yeah, back. Go back, go back. Go around. False go alarm. Around. All right, yeah. Teresa, you want to wrap this one up? I reckon that would be a great place. Yeah, I'm not feeling good today, so I want to just sit back and, like, watch something and do nothing. And my butt hurts still. And Teresa's butt hurts. Mm. So... That's off the table tonight. <laughs> so, how about that listener write in? Oh, shoot. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. All right. I've got to get this on now. Teresa's got to get us on Wi Fi. Get us on now. Come on now. Yeah, man. Because I got a busy day tomorrow. I'm going to start firing some pots. I'm excited about that. I've got like five days out in the country, and I'm just going to fire as many pots with as many strategies as I can. And oh, man, when you do pottery, that is the uh, 
the exciting and scary moment, the firing. Everything else you can kind of like tweak, you know, work with. Basically, even when a pot cracks in half before you fire it, you can kind of fix that or sort of give yourself a shot at it. The firing, you've changed it. It either makes it or it doesn't. That's the big moment. Makes it or it breaks it. All right. We got a listener right in? Yes, we do, honey. Did you want to read this? No, you go ahead. All right. This is Michelle from Chapin, South Carolina. Woo! And this is in response to... Hobosan and the Mito Way. The Mito Way. South Carolina. Let's see. Hello, sweet friends. I love Mary and her nest. <laughs> so there's a YouTube channel we mentioned called Mary's Nest, and uh, I don't know. I'm not, she she hasn't won me over yet. I've been watching some of her videos, and already one thing, like I'm trying to learn how to make kombucha. She gave advice that apparently was wrong. She said you couldn't make it with flavored kombucha, but I've Heard from a lot of people at this point, and I'm trying it right now, so I'll know in a couple weeks maybe that, that was, you can. Maybe that was Mary's experience, though. Well, her experience is wrong. She can say, this is what I've done, but to say that you can't, that's, that's beyond true. her experience. That's wrong. That's that's reaching. Well, it's not wrong until I've actually done it. That's my theory is that it's yeah. wrong. So That's true, too. Anyway, continuing. Hope you'll be enjoying the outside fragrance in your van. I was listening for Samson when you demonstrated the sounds of fired and unfired pottery. So I think she means Sherlock. Uh, and it's close. It could have been autocorrect. Yeah, yeah, it's two syllables. Starts with an S. It's mm-hmm. close. Um, and they're both in the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the Apostle Sherlock. Yes, I, that did ring a bell. No, they changed his name from Sherlock to something else, like they did with all the other apostles. Hmm. Okay, Simon, you be Peter. Yeah. All right, Sherlock, you're going to be Jesus. (gasps) All right, so, yeah, and she was referring to, um, I shared a video on Facebook of, like, the fired pot, and I plucked it, and as soon as I plucked the unfired pot, Sherlock started barking, like, immediately, (laughs) like, that was the sound of the unfired pot, because I was just like, this is the sound of an unfired pot. Listen. Sounds like a dog to me. So, yeah, and then we did the podcast, and we didn't have the dog barking. Um, I got into a brief review. I can't, I can't even do the southern accent right now. I got into a brief review of the biblical creation story a couple of weeks ago. Came across a question as to whether Adam had an extra rib or did without one, which led me to recall that it was revealed very late in her life that my mother, Mary, had an extra rib. Yet more proof that she was a rare treasure and possibly an explanation of some of her symptoms at the end of her life. My goodness. So, yeah, I remember. You got anything else to add to your uh, hypothesis there? Your hypothesis, which was that possibly there's some connection in the biblical story of creation and the rib playing such a prominent role that you're seeing a connection, a parallel on pottery, because pottery is such a creative, basic thing that plays into a lot of creation stories yeah, and, and like, a rib is one of the traditional scraping tools yeah with and, pottery. and like if people in the olden times you know they were making in the olden times were making pottery in the way that you're now making pottery not because um i don't think not because just somebody on a youtube channel said it but probably because they back then used something like a deer rib Oh, yeah. I'd feel so, pretty sure of it. So, yeah, like imagine if people told a story and they were, you know, maybe at the time they were working on some sort of pottery. I don't know. 
And this is just a really nice way to look at it. And uh, that story got passed down from generation to generation. It was such a good story. But every generation that was removed from that creation with the clay, the story got a little changed. And maybe the story in the Bible was a, like, uh, a little bit from this story, a little bit from that story, and, like, put it all together to make everybody happy. Well, I'll tell you, I hated that story when I was growing up. It just, I thought it was so stupid. But I love that story now. I am constantly revisiting the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and finding more, uh, you know, I'll, I'll never know. And I think that's beside the point. I'll never know what it was intended to mean. Could be a Cohen. We don't know. Yeah. I mean, there's no way. There's no way of knowing what that was intended to mean. That's gone forever, unless you believe you get all the answers when you die or something. But right now, that information is gone. So every story that old, the treasure in it is in interpretation. Does it stimulate you? Does it lead you to things, your own thinking? And it does. That story constantly leads me to things, to ideas, to just, it's so rich. So yeah, I love that story. Pastors Arnold and Dennis Murray have been my primary Bible teachers. Arnold said that the original text included the word for curve in the creation of Eve, which he believed referred to the helix curve of DNA. That seemed to be a better explanation. See what I mean? Everybody interprets it. It's just interpretation. Yeah. Now, how do I know that Dennis is right or wrong? How does Dennis know that I'm right or wrong? That information's gone. It's all the interpretation. Yeah, maybe in the original story, the person that was telling the story was like, and did like the curve. That's what I thought. I was like, ooh, Eve and I curve. thought that was so obvious. Mm. <laughs> yeah, everybody like started reading into it too much, and they're like, oh, it's the, but you know, maybe I don't know either. So I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing with you. In the original text, they were like, look, we need to record that Eve was sexy as. Fuck, you know, like, I want the word curve in there and vivacious and buxom, buxom like three times. Like, she was fertile, you know what I'm saying? And that got lost, thanks Catholicism. 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 Catheterism. Ew, I don't think, well, I don't know. I'm proud of that one. All right, back to uh, Michelle from uh, Chapin, South Carolina. This is the last part of it. I was able to listen via Anchor on my phone, but I'm going to have to have a way to comment as I listen, or I'll have to take notes. <laughs> Pausing for now, but we'll return. Oh. Well, she hasn't returned yet. But, uh, <laughs> I know the feeling. I know the feeling. But, um, yeah, that's kind of what I do. Like, actually, <laughs> here's something. Every episode, like a mile marker has like, this is mile marker 140, for instance. I don't know what the three things I'm going to say are. Everything has like a (laughs) subtitle, a mile marker. So I listen back and I take notes for anything that jumps out at me. It's like, that's a unique phrase. That's an interesting, uh, and I just do a brainstorm of all the things. They're like, all right, I'm going to jot that down. And it also helps me edit. So in case I say something that I'm like, oh my God, I cannot release that to the world. So far, I've been remarkably promiscuous with what I'm willing to release to the world, apparently. I've yet to stop myself. I don't claim to know about anything that I say. I'm just spewing shit out my mouth all the time. Yeah, it's true. It is true. (laughs) Testify. 
Um, <sighs> but yeah, so God, I forgot what I was saying. Oh, I, I made saying, it right to the end. You were saying that like we record ourselves, all right? And then oh, you yeah, listen yeah. back. So taking notes, yeah. So I take notes, not of questions to ask or anything, but I listen through to make sure that I'm not going to say something that I'm not willing to release um, or that there's some big glaring mistake, like somebody hit the wrong button and like yeah, yeah. <laughs> we thought we were talking and there's just like 10 minutes of silence or something. That 10 minutes of silence is probably the most important 10 minutes of anything we ever do. But out of those notes, that comes the rest of the title. So there you go. That's how the genius happens. <laughs> Use it like, responsibly. It's how we reindoctrinate ourselves <laughs> every week. Use it for good, not evil. <laughs> so, Teresa, when you're ready, if you want to take us out with the outro. Okay. If you would like to send us... Oh, and thank you, Michelle, by the way. I love listener write-ins. And so if you want to be a listener write-in, you can do that on our website, escapingsociety.weebly with a B dot com and we have a donate button if you feel so moved and you want to get rid of some of that cash we'll take it and do stuff something with it nothing big because we're not like that we use it responsibly yeah you always make it sound like we're about to like do paper airplanes and throw 20 dollar bills off a, a cliff or something one time my mom this is a bonus story bonus footage one time my mom like me, my brother, and my dad were all sitting in the back porch, and the back porch had a fan on the ceiling, all right? And I guess there was a newspaper, and my mom bet $100 that I couldn't get a paper airplane from the newspaper to get up on one of the fan blades. And I fucking did it. And she gave me $100. And then she said, well, it's only fair that I offer it to your brother, too. So my brother made a paper airplane, and he got it, too. And, then and to my... be clear, this was a moving fan? Yes. <laughs> it was a fan that was on. Oh, yeah, I forgot to say that. So, yeah, so when you said paper airplanes, it just made me think, like, and you said $20 bills. Made me think about that. All right, dude. All right, so anyway, yeah, I got a little sidetracked. That's okay. And we hope that you enjoyed our show, and thank you for listening. Kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to eat it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. So, thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it, cause we'll be gone. Over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.